You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 165 which is also the same speed. That's the fastest speed I ever got on my motorcycle too. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been that fast. The fa- I was on a CBR 1100 whatever. This is years ago. And I got about to 130 and the, the helmet started pulling the chin strap <laughs> underneath my neck. I was like, you know, Mark, you better slow down. So I did. But 165, geez, Jake, that's fast. Everything, everything just becomes a blur at that point. But anyways, uh, do we have any good reviews we want to read? Oh, heck yeah. So a couple good ones. Favorite ONG podcasts. Hey, gents, thank you for the great content. I've been selling lubes downstream. That sounds so bad. Uh, for the past <laughs> three years after working upstream for 10 years, the podcast has been an excellent way to keep current with upstream issues and topics while working downstream. I recently moved back to upstream and tell everybody I talked to about your podcast. I enjoy all OGGN podcasts and look forward to the new episodes being launched this year. Cheers. That's awesome. And you know what, Jake? Think about that. This is somebody, this is uh, Ivan Lee 3. This is somebody that saw, had the downturn and realized they could just go to the downstream part of the industry. It was booming because of the downturn. That's pretty cool that he learned to jump from one section to another. And then we have another, uh, Henry Henra Setra. Greetings from the Baltic and Nordic states. Hey, greetings. I have been listening to your podcast now for a while, and as a longtime oil and gas enthusiast, the insights you provide are absolutely amazing. Oil and gas this week and startups podcast. Oh, that's cool. Jake has brought a lot of motivation and knowledge to me. pursue career in the field after I'm ready with my business studies in, in business school. So thank you and keep up the great work. Hey, Henry, we will absolutely creep up great work. And thanks for li- mentioning the startups podcast because it really is a good show. And if you don't know what we're talking about, audience, Jake and Colin have an oil and gas startup show. Just Google it. You'll find it. It's awesome. Even if you're not in the oil and gas world, go listen to it. It's really good. And today is our first Friday Q&A. Like always, we uh, take questions from the listeners. And then if we uh, read them on there, we give you a big shout out. So Jake, let's jump into the questions. Cool. First question is from Sarah, who's in government affairs at Chevron. She writes, good morning, love the show, and I'm beyond grateful for the information and insights you provide as the industry as I'm new. I'll leave a rave review on the podcast, but first I wanted to ask you if you have plans to come out to the Bay Area this year for happy hour. Please let me know, and if so, how I could help coordinate. Looking forward to hearing from you guys. The reason I left that one in there, Jake, you know where I am right now? You're in San Francisco? I'm in the Bay Area. Area? So Sarah, hi. <laughs> and so I actually reached out to Sarah and we are coordinating launching a pod a happy hour in the Bay Area, which the, the surprising thing, Jake, is I've known Chevron for shoot 20 years. They headquartered in San Ramon. It's beautiful. And I've been out there a gazillion times. And I asked her, said, is there any other oil and gas companies out here? Because we can't just have a happy hour. Just I guess we could have a happy hour just for Chevron, but we'd prefer not to. And you know, Jake, she rattled off about 20 other oil and gas, either operators or service companies or midstream companies that didn't even know we're here. So we're, we're, we're working on launching one here. And then the funny thing is we then also uh, got asked to launch another happy hour uh, further north in California. So we may end up with two happy hours in California, which is not a bad thing. That's so funny. One of the most liberal states out there with two oil and gas happy hours. <laughs> yeah. And if, you, if you're if you listening out there and you work in a town where there's an oil and gas presence in the U.S., uh, although we do have one international in Tanzania, hey, Hussein. Uh, yeah, if you ever go to Tanzania, we have an oil and gas happy hour there. But if you want to help us launch an oil and gas uh, happy hour with OGG in, in your neck of the woods, reach out to me and talk to me. We've got a bunch of them in the works, but um, we would like to have a bunch more. All right, Jake, what's next? We have a question from Ben Kwasnick. No clue what he does or where he's who he is with. But he writes, you mentioned hoping Guyana's government would manage the recent find responsibly. Can you share some examples for a template of a government doing a good job of managing oil and other resources, especially with regard to the corruption aspect and how 
any success stories avoided it. Also, have you read the prize yet? So I, I have the prize. I haven't read it. It's sitting on my iPad. It's, it's on my list of things to read. Have you read it, Jake? I'm right there with you. It's, it's in my iBooks right now, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. So no, we haven't read it yet. Now, the corruption thing is really interesting. Unfortunately, if you look at governments that have hydrocarbons around the world, and if you would rank them and, and basically said, these are high corrupt governments that have hydrocarbons, and these are low corruption governments that have hydrocarbons, unfortunately, they, they, there's a maturity curve, almost like a bell curve. And so a lot of countries start out with very little corruption, and they get all the money and wealth from the hydrocarbons, and then corruption comes in, and, they, and the corruption goes up and up and up and up and up, and then hopefully it peaks, and then the people of that country can't take the corruption anymore, and they force the government to change. And so, but some countries actually are able to knock out the part without going through that bell curve. So Norway is the first one that pops in my head. They had when they made those discoveries in Narsi, they had no corruptions issues whatsoever. Another one that might surprise people is Australia. You know, the big Gorgon project out there. You know, no issues with corruption out there that, that I'm aware of. But then other countries. So uh, Uruguay is another one. The uh, Emirates, the United Arab Emirates. Qatar, Poland, you know, all those countries have hydrocarbons and they're able to actually go into the production, exploration, then production and and limit the corruption that goes on. And, but you get down to like the African countries, the South America, Central South American countries, and the corruption is just through the roof. And hopefully a lot of that's changing. You know, unfortunately, we all know what's going on in Venezuela right right now. It's so bad that, that they're over in the process of overthrowing the government. The U.S. is playing a part in that, I think. But it's, it's gotten so bad for the last couple of years, they couldn't feed their own people. They were literally trading crude oil for rice and beans. They couldn't get medical supplies. There's no diapers. And that's all because of the corruption there. So it's unfortunate that it happens. You know, why it happens, you know, we could spend two hours talking about that. But there are some countries out there that that have able to go into the hydrocarbon market without going down the corruption path, which is good. But unfortunately, a lot of them do. And so, you know, the, the best thing we could do as an industry, as a global industry, is not support those countries that we know are doing things that are corrupt. Even if we can make money there, let's wait until they get stuff under control. And and the majors, the European super majors and the majors and the American super majors and majors do a pretty good job of trying to control that. The problem is when you have nationalized oil companies or NOx, then the own government that's corrupt is then controlling the oil company. And that's just a bad situation. Cool. Next question is from, I'm probably going to butcher your name. I'm sorry. Brett Ragon? Ragon? I don't know if it's a Cajun thing. Mark, do you know? Uh, that's not Cajun. <laughs> that's not Cajun. Okay. Yeah. He's a president at Basin Water Resources. He writes, hi, guys. We heard you all mention something about water recycling and treatment during your show with Kurt. And we'd like to know what's going on from a treatment side. If you'd like to collaborate and do a show or two that discusses the basics of water treatment or some Q&A from the listeners, we'd love to see what that looks like. Thanks, Brett. Now, so I left this in here, Jake, because I get this a lot. I usually don't leave them in here. And, and what's happening is people want exposure on the show, which is great. We want to give you exposure. We want to give you exposure in a non-salesy way, in a way that helps uh, educate our audience, right? And so I'm going to connect Brett with uh, Russell, who's the new host of the hs and show. I think this would be a great fit for there. But the other thing is, just last week, we are at the Produce Water Society event. And it, it's one of the things that I learned, and I, I co- I'm constantly learning about this industry. But one of the things that, that I've learned that kind of bothers me is the the organizations out there and the people out there that don't like our industry are constantly trying to shut us down. And they start off trying to shut down drilling. And that just didn't work because people make money off of it and people see the the prosperity that hydrocarbons provide to the world. So then they went after the pipelines. And they unfortunately been pretty successful because they realized that if you can't move those hydrocarbons to market, why would you drill? And so you're seeing that going on here in the US, you're seeing it going on in Canada, and, and unfortunately it's starting to go other places 
you know, in the world where, where the anti-oil and gas activists are shutting down pipelines, you know, political, legally uh, getting laws passed, that sort of thing. The next thing they're going after, Jake, is water. What happens, Jake? You own wells. What happens when you can't get rid of your produced water? <laughs> we turn the wells off. <laughs> yeah, right. And so this is a real big thing that our industry as a whole, it's our, our Achilles heel. I mean, literally everything from not just to produce water, but when you're drilling, when you're fracking, when you're building pipelines, when you're jetting mud, you know, all of that uses water. And so, and there's, we use a lot of water in the oil and gas industry, but it's about one tenth of what the agriculture industry uses. So don't think we're using more water than things like farmers, right? We're not. But the thing I want to make people aware of is that we need to pay attention to rules and regulations, to policy to politicians around water in the oil and gas industry because the anti-oil and gas activists are going after that. And if they get their hands around that, and if they get restrictions made, you know, where you can't, there are no injection wells, that is, it, you cannot recycle water unless it comes back clean enough to water organic crops, that's going to shut down our industry. And so just people out there, be aware that, that this water issue is something that we never talk about. That's kind of silent, but the anti-oil and gas people are going after it big time to try to try to control what we're doing. So don't let that happen. And, and Brett, I'm a, like I said, I'm gonna connect you with Russell. We'd love to have you on the show and HS and show. Cause I'd love to carry on these discussions. Cool. Next question is from Craig, who's a petroleum engineering student. Uh, he writes, I'm a student looking for some advice on the field of petroleum engineering and would appreciate to hear what you think about the future of this field. I have planned for some time and I'm fascinated by the technical side of petroleum engineering. I'm interested in the geology and exploration aspects of it and would eventually like to work as a reservoir engineer or in a similar capacity. I've been fortunate being accepted to several highly regarded colleges offering petroleum engineering curriculum and have to make my choice soon. My concerns is the outlook for and the future of my professional career choice as well as the industry. Many of my family and friends in other contexts question my preference saying that the world is turning away from oil and that my career opportunities would be limited by the narrow focus on this field. What would a petroleum engineer be able to do, effectively do, if industry trends make it necessary to pivot and apply his expertise to another field? Any advice and insight you might have for me that could shed some light on whether or not this is a good idea and enter into the field of petroleum engineering would be very much appreciated. So first thing out of my mouth, uh, Craig, is if you want to make a lot of money, yeah, continue petroleum engineering. Oil is not going anywhere ever, ever, right? Now, let me tell you, one of the disadvantages of the discipline of petroleum engineering is you tend to work in upstream. Oil and gas is a commodity and you have cycles, you have up cycles and down cycles. And unfortunately, when you have a down cycle, petroleum engineers get laid off. You can prevent that from happening by learning something that will help you with your petroleum engineering, but is different than what all your other petroleum engineer peers are doing. And Jake, I know you know where I'm going with this. You need to learn some big data analytics, right? You, you need to have that in your toolbox. The other thing is, Craig, is that you don't necessarily have to work for an oil and gas company. So I'm sitting right now in San Francisco. We're getting ready to go to the IBM Think Conference, right? IBM has a bunch of petroleum engineers that work for them. There's a whole bunch of tech companies that hire geologists, geophysics, petroleum engineers, project managers, accountings that work in oil and gas because they want to do something with our data and they understand the data and they understand how to make money at it. And they understand how to drive efficiencies. They don't understand our industry. So my, my advice to you, first thing, your friends and your family, I'm, I'm sure you love them deaf. They don't really know what they're talking about. Oil and gas will be part of mankind forever. And as we enter space, it's going to be more and more important. But I would get some big data analytics classes and some certifications under my belt. When you get out and you go to work for a company, be open-minded about moving around. Don't become a, a reservoir engineer and work for the same company for 20 years. That's a recipe for disaster. Find other things in the same company. Find other companies. Get that experience and you're, you are set. Now, for, for other engineering students out there that may be making the same 
think about the same thing. It doesn't matter. The petroleum engineer only gets crunch when things go down. But if you're a mechanical engineer, reciprocal engineer, electrical engineer, whatever, you can always move around in this industry because when upstream's hurting, downstream's on fire. So when we have low crude prices, the upstream companies and the service companies, you know, the Halliburton's and Baker Hughes, whatever, they have to lay people off, unfortunately, because they don't have as much revenue coming in. But that means the raw feedstock for the petrochemical companies, the ethylene crackers, the refineries is much cheaper and they boom. So any other engineer can make that pivot. And we talked about earlier in this show with the, with the review that we read, the petroleum engineer, it's harder to go work in downstream, quite frankly. But that's, but other than that, the, the, and the final bit of advice I'm gonna give you, Craig, is Last year, in 2018, the number one job that was the highest paid right out of school was, guess what? Petroleum engineering. So go do it, dude. When you think about like who's really pushing the envelope as far as like, I guess like, you know, like technology and like the future of like humankind, you, know, you think of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, yep. and space exploration and where it goes next. And we know that you can't really have a modern civilization without petroleum and petroleum byproducts, right? We've seen that here, obviously on earth, but then think about if we're prospecting for another earth 2.0, what is one of the most important things that we're going to be looking for? It's not only can we inhabit that planet, but also do we have the natural resources there locally to support that civilization, nope. right? Or else we're going to have to bring those in from earth to some other planet. So I guess just to caveat on what you said, like, you know, it's, Absolutely not going anywhere. Now, wait, Jake, here's something that I, I've just started talking about recently. Regardless of what you think about whether there's a creator or not, whatever, if you think that the future of mankind involves space travel, I will tell you something. There's no fuel that has enough energy density to get us out of our gravity well except hydrocarbons. So you, you mentioned uh, Elon Musk, his a SpaceX program, they burn kerosene and liquid oxygen, right? And and by the way, people, that's a ton of CO2 he dumps there. There's no catalytic converters <laughs> on a rocket and no big deal. But hydrocarbons are the best fuel, right? Now, here's the thing that that I, I've been talking about lately, and like I said, regardless of what your religious beliefs are, halfway through our solar system at Saturn, Saturn has a moon that has liquid lakes of methane. So it's liquid lakes of natural gas. If you're a spaceship, you would drive by, you'd park just like you pull in a gas station, you drop your tube down, suck up your whatever millions of gallons of natural gas you need to get to the rest, get out of the solar system. Then, Jake, at the very end of our solar system, which is about halfway from Saturn, is Uranus. And don't, yeah, everybody make teenage, teenage jokes about me saying Uranus. But Uranus also has a moon that has liquid natural gas on it, lakes of liquid gas. I mean, it's like it's almost set up perfectly for spaceship refueling. So once again, it's not going anywhere. It's vital to our future. Everything that you touch either has hydrocarbons in it or is transferred or is transported hydrocarbons. Now, our mix will change, but that just means there's more, more need for petroleum engineers. And then finally, Craig, a lot of people like you have those doubts and they're changing their majors, which means there's going to be a constraint. So imagine being the only one of petroleum engineers that 30 company wants to hire. That's coming literally probably next year or two. So you're in a good place, Craig. Cool. Next question is from B, senior petroleum engineer. <laughs> right. Hey guys, uh, first time listener, but we'll definitely continue to follow. Two questions for you guys. First question is, we are long past the days of peak oil supply. What are your thoughts on peak demand? All right, B. So one thing, if you wanted to be anonymous, you gave us your email address. I'm not going to read it, but but if you weren't being anonymous, B is fine. So you're absolutely right. Uh, peak oil supply. It it, it was Shell's uh, scientist Hubbard, I believe it was his name, came out that with in the late 50s, and it was just based on data he had it at its disposal. It's not legit. We we will run out of hydrocarbons after the sun runs out of hydrogen. They're just forever. The other thing, Joe, you know, that he brought this up. This is one thing people don't talk about, I and mean, a lot of people don't know. But hydrocarbons are still being created. 
in our ocean right now, hydrocarbons still be created. The same process has always happened. You know, photoplankton, algae absorbs the, the energy from the sun. They take that carbon atom and they crack it, convert it to sugar. They sink in the bottom of the ocean. When they die, there's no oxygen. It layers the sediment. A million years later, pressure, temperature, everything, and you have hydrocarbons, right? That process is still going on. Now, it's not going on as fast as like the Jurassic and the Pleistocene era, but it's still going on. So oil and gas is still being created and always will as long as we have plant life here. So peak demand, that's an interesting one. I think we're going to hit peak demand probably in the next 50 years-ish, but I don't think we're going to hit peak demand and it's going to drop off. I think we're going to hit peak demand and it's going to level off. So instead of a chart going up and down, I think it's going to go up and then level off. And because we're using less and less hydrocarbons for fuel, both here and in Europe. And, you know, Jake, you mentioned Tesla. Electric cars make a ton of sense. They're very efficient, right? An internal combustion engine wastes a lot of its energy as heat. Well, with an electric car, you can capture that heat at the steam generator instead of having to lug it around in a car, right? Because you don't care how much the steam generator weighs. There's no transmission, so you, you lose you don't lose those efficiencies. Most modern cars lose about 20% of their power between the engine and the rear wheels because of the transmission, because of friction. And then finally, you have zero, you have hundred percent torque at one RPM. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Jake and I know exactly what that, that means you can burn out, right? That means you have hundred percent of your torque literally at one RPM. There's a lot of advantages to electric cars. We need to break through a battery technology and, and that will come, but peak all demand. I, I think it will happen in the future, not in my lifetime, but like I said, I don't think it will drop off. I think it'll just level off. What's the next one, Jake? Second question is what's your opinion on the shipping containers versus the oil and gas export vessels debate currently going on in the Houston ship channel? Yeah, that's a freaking mess. So what really a tanker. So so think of a, a vessel, a large vessel designed literally just to carry a bunch of liquid in this case, uh, crude oil. Same way with LNG. It's liquefied natural gas. It's been chilled and now it's a liquid and you can move it. It's a much more efficient way of moving hydrocarbons around. And a lot of people may know this, but at any one time, there's more oil and gas by weight being moved around our oceans than all the fish in the ocean the weight of all the fish in the ocean combined. That's a lot of hydrocarbons being moved around. But what happened is shipping containers, that's those vessels you see that have all the sea cans stacked on top of each other. And if you don't know what a sea can is, it looks like what's on the back of a lot of diesel trucks. So it's like a steel rectangular box. It's a universal shipping container. And these shipping container ships have gotten bigger and bigger. You know, everything you buy, or not everything, but everything that's imported tends to come in in sea cans and shipping containers. And it makes logistics very easy because this sea can could have, you know, olive oil in it. And this one could have coffee. And this one could have laptops in it and then it just gets routed whereas you couldn't do that if it's all mixed together in a tanker the the problem though is that the city the port of houston is gotten to the point where it can't take all the traffic so the bulk carriers the big big you know uh, lng and, and soup carriers out there they're really the most efficient way to move hydrocarbons in and out of the port of houston the problem is they can't get in and out because of the sea can sea can ships and so you know the chinese have have really really grown a lot of that bulk carrier market and then because they have that bulk carrier market, the super tankers can't get in. Now, there's some plans. Actually, it's not some plans. There's actually construction going on right now in Texas and also in Louisiana to extend the terminals so that the, the tankers don't have to actually come into port. They can actually load and offload off the sea. I think that will remove a lot of traffic. The other thing that's going on that's interesting is that the the – price of land, whether you buy it or rent it in the Houston chip channel is it went through the roof. Now the Houston chip channel is one of the best ports to bring stuff in and out in the entire country, right? Sorry, California. But what's happening is because of the congestion and the high land prices, people are looking at Louisiana and they're dumping money into cleaning up and dredging their ports. So now you're starting to see a lot of the traffic that 
originally would have come here go to Louisiana because it's a cheaper option. So it's going to be interesting to watch Texas and Louisiana battle it out. Texas has the upper hand right now. Louisiana could catch up with us if they play their political cards right. Unfortunately, because I'm from Louisiana, I don't have a lot of optimism that they're going to actually play their political cards right. So we'll keep an eye on this one. Cool. Next question, and I think last question of the day, is from John Williams, who's a venture executive at Petrus. He writes, love the show, gents, and startup show as well. Damn, Jake, two plugs in the same, same show. Man, this is getting good. Mark, what do you think is the most important things facing our industry looking forward? Let's start there. Okay, so I talked about water. That was one that I didn't even wasn't aware of until just recently. The biggest thing I think facing our industry is two things. One is we had this enormous talent shortage. I mean, we read from Craig where he doesn't know if he wants to come work in this industry. For the first time in our history, some young teenage kid in Nigeria doesn't want to go work at Chevron or Exxon. Up until just recently, if he got a job at Exxon or Slumberger or whatever, the village would celebrate because it was prosperity. He had money. He had medical care. You know, those the oil and gas companies take care of their people. They build schools, medical care, right? Now he thinks that the oil and gas industry is destroying the planet. He doesn't want to come work for us. We've never had that happen. At the same time, we have negative public opinion that we've allowed happen. We've allowed it. It's our own fault. We we need to own this. For the last 50 years, anytime somebody says something negative about our industry in the public eye, we don't correct them. And then with the invent of social media 10 or 12 years ago, it allows people to amplify. So one person that doesn't like our industry for whatever reason now has the ear of millions of people who then believe it. I think, honestly, that's the two biggest things facing our industry is this lack of talent, lack of people wanting to come work here, and the negative public perception. The negative public perception, I think we've turned the tide last year, although it's going to take 10 years for us to get where we need to be. But the talent thing, Jake, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's going to drive, it's going to make companies use technology instead of people, which in some ways is good. But this industry is a engineering and project management centric industry, whether it's upstream, midstream or downstream. What happens, Jake, when we can't hire project managers? They don't want to come work in this industry. We can't hire engineers. You know, so that's, that's what I'm worried about. All right. Next part of his question is, uh, he writes, Jake, when VC groups are looking to make an investment in oil and gas tech, what are a couple things that they often overlook? I think as a whole, I think the industry is overlooking early stage investments. And I say early stage investments in the sense that the rest of the world outside of oil and gas tech uses that phrase, meaning truly early stage. And I think I think the oil and gas tech industry is kind of in its own little bubble with not really understanding I mean, you, you think about the oil and gas industry, anything you're building is going to be B2B, right? So there's, it's on the software side, it takes years to build something that's enterprise level. I know that from firsthand experience twice. And then on the, if you're building equipment or you're building anything else in the oil and gas it, industry, it's, it's extremely capital intensive, you know, and a lot of these VC groups, you know, they want you to have X amount of sales. They want to have X amount of traction metrics and stuff like that, which is great. But I think the VCs are extremely risk adverse. Most are that I know. And they're just not investing in early stage. I think that's the biggest barrier right now that we're seeing in the oil and gas tech space is that VCs are not taking the risk on early stage investments like you see in Silicon Valley. And therefore, they're not going to get any major exits like they would potentially. Because a lot of these companies now, the sentiment is kind of changing to where it's like, okay, well, I'm a software company in oil and gas. I get to a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. Why the hell do I need VC money at this point? If I can get myself to that point, I can be self-sustaining and operate within cash flow. Yeah. So Jake, educate me. Like, What is early stage? I mean, I know it's obviously early, but like, is that like an idea or is that when you actually have a business that's functioning? You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, 
it's at the MVP stage. So you have a minimum viable product. You have a great business plan. There's a lot of interest, but usually you need a little small injection of capital, sub $1 million, usually the three to 500K range that would take you to that next level. Gotcha. Right. And so for like for us, for example, what would help me with WellHub currently with all the things that we have on our plate? It would be a small investment of three to five hundred thousand dollars, which would allow me to hire like four developers on full time, build out the feature set that we need to meet the demands of this growing waiting list of EMPs that want to use the software. Right. So that's a real world example. But we see the same thing on the equipment manufacturing side. We've seen it with all sorts of oil and gas tech startups. It's in Silicon Valley or even in New York, I say Silicon Valley loosely, outside of Houston, let's just say that, there are so many firms that literally you can have just an idea. You have no business plan around it. You have no idea how you're actually going to monetize it and get a ridiculous check. Yeah. Is that the smartest thing ever? I don't know. But we've seen a lot of those turn into really, really great exits. Yeah. I got a I, I got a, a person that's a close friend of mine started out as being a customer of mine, and that's what he does. He finds the people the right ideas and the right motivation, and then not only does he invest cash, but then he brings the company. So he brings the accounting, the CEOs, the you know whatever the person needs. So that person instantly has the ability to just stand up a company, and he's done very well doing that. And I think on the if you're looking at like CVCs, which I'm thinking maybe John Williams is possibly CVC with with Petrobras most likely. I think the CVCs they always invest in things that they can use internally, and so I think possibly there's a lack of self awareness to what their actual problems are. So they're really only going out looking for investments of what the perceived problems of their organizations are, rather than maybe what the actual problems of the organization are. I think there could be a potential disconnect. What's a CVC? Corporate venture capital arm. All right. So the internal venture capital groups. Yeah. 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 So usually the requirements there are they're solving a internal need that's been identified by probably the business side of the house. And then it has to obviously be piloted and tested internally. And then from there, you know, they decide what they want. They want to make an investment. Gotcha. Kind of moving forward. That's not actually, I mean, that's not fact. I mean, that's just kind of me speculating based on my relationships with CVCs and what I've seen in the market. But yeah, I agree with you. So I, I know some of those venture capital groups and the super majors, and that's what they do. And you're right. They tend to have a closed loop system internally. So the business has a problem. The business thinks it knows what the solution is. They engage with their internal venture capital who goes, finds a startup that does it, not realizing that maybe the problem they have is either bigger or different, or maybe there's another solution nobody knows about. Yeah. What I've seen is like, you know, say they spec out in Q4 of 2018 exactly what all of their issues are internally, right? And they say, hey, CVC, go find some startups to invest in, you know, for, you know, across, let's say 2019, right? And what if a couple of problems didn't really make it on the docket or they, they talk to a startup and they're like, oh shit, we probably actually do have this issue, right? But it's not on our, it's not what we scoped out right. for 2019. So now we shelf it for 2020. Right. And by that time, that startup could have already grown. They're maybe not in early stage anymore. They don't need your money. Yeah. You know, so I think it's being more flexible, being more nimble, understanding the scope, especially on the CV side, can potentially change and investing in truly early stage. And I think redefining what early stage actually means in oil and gas tech. Good stuff, Jake. Thanks for the education. And last part of his question is, and explain what you and Colin are trying to do with Digital Wildcatters vlog. I like it. Just curious what you're trying to accomplish. <laughs> We're just documenting. There's a direct correlation between deal flow for all the things that we do and opportunities with the content that we put out. And so we're not really trying to like stage anything. It's literally, we've got 
you know, our videographer who follows us around, goes to meetings, goes to podcasts, goes to conferences and stuff, and just kind of records it. We're letting that kind of just evolve over time and we'll see what comes out of it. Now, Jake, just to be clear though, if somebody wanted to sponsor your vlog, you wouldn't automatically say no. No, I wouldn't automatically <laughs> say no, but I wouldn't automatically say yes right. either. If there's a company who's looking to kind of work with us and help us continue doing what we're doing, you know, a, a sponsorship for us on the vlog means that we get more resources, aka we get our videographer more hours a week. Because right now we we really only show about one day a week. And so there's a, there's a lot more that we can actually kind of put out there and different types of content that we would like to put out on the video medium. So yeah, if any, if any company is interested in that, we can always uh, talk more about that as well. But thank you, John Williams, for, for watching the vlog. Yeah. So, Appreciate that. So John, Petrobras US has an issue, right? Jake and Colin's vlog could fix that issue. And that issue is, is basically public perception of your parent company. And you know, I'm, nobody's hiding from that elephant in the room. So if you're interested, reach out to Jake and Colin, start a conversation with them. Awesome, guys. Well, great questions. Hopefully, we provide you with some good answers. If you have any questions for next month's First Friday Q&A, please write in. Obviously, the goal is not to try to stump us with technical uh, <laughs> questions, but if you've got any good questions, just please write in. Do we have any events to talk about? We do, but just real quick before we go there, IBM's a new host for the show. Uh, we are actually here. Jake, unfortunately, couldn't join us. We're here in San Francisco at the Think Conference. We're going to record a couple episodes here. I know we've been negligent on the giveaways that Landing Page is built. We're still finalizing. You know, IBM's a big company, so just give us another week or two, and we'll finally get the giveaways going again. We're, we're giving away something really cool that, unfortunately, I can't tell you about, but we actually have some events going on, and, and one of the events I want to talk about is uh, what Emerson's doing in the Permian, but instead of me talking about it, let's let Drew talk about it. Hit it, Drew. So Drew, Emerson's been around. I've known you for a long time. Y'all got a heavy presence in the Permian and y'all really believe in local communities. What do y'all have going on out there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Mark, you've seen it. The Permian Basin is, you know, the hubs are really Midland and Odessa, but it spans out so much farther than that. And so many of the well pads and facilities for oil and gas are in really highly remote places. So it's super important that, you know, we have local resources to support support our customers and really provide that local presence when customers need someone to help solve their problem. So as a part of that, we've invested $4 million in a brand new service center in the Permian Basin inside of Odessa. We're really excited about it. It really expands that ability to help serve our local customers. So we're having a grand opening event on March 1st, starting at 3.30. So we're going to have an open house with a barbecue, kind of a come one, come all. So hope everyone out in the Permian Basin. <laughs> hope everybody in the Permian Basin shows up. That's yeah, too many people, Drew. But let me tell yeah. you, folks, there's a link in the show notes. If you're in that area or around that area, this is worth your time going to. You're going to get to see some of the really cool stuff that Emerson is doing it, but you get to do it with your local friends and contractors and vendors and suppliers and operators in the Permian Basin, all thanks to Emerson. So, Drew, that we'll put it, your link in the show notes. People, go sign up now because this thing's going to fill up quickly. Drew, dude, man, thanks for coming on to help explain your event much better than I could have explained it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Mark. All right. That's really cool. And we're actually, Jake, we're launching a Permian Perspective podcast about another month. We're making a couple trips out the middle. We're going to start a happy hour there. So it's it's blowing and going in the Permian. So the next event we have is, of course, a super happy hour here in Houston. Uh, it's always the last Tuesday of the month. Go to Oil and Gas Global. Oh, no, Jake, we have another announcement. We finally got OGGN.com. So instead of typing in that long oil and gas global network.com, just go to OGGN.com. Uh, click on the events page and you can see it's the events that's going on right now. The only one we have stood up here in Houston. But very soon we have Boulder, Colorado, the Bay Area, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Midland, and Denver, Colorado happy hours launching. So we're going to have a bunch of happy hours in a couple months going on in the country. And then eventually when all the, we fill up this country, we're going to start going international and stuff, so which will be really cool. And then 
If you would like Jake and I to come out to your event, oh, I left out one. We have the SPE Corporate Top Golf Tournament. That's February twenty first. That's right around the corner. We actually have one of our podcasters there. I think HSC podcast videos. Russell, there's gonna be some awards. But if you go hang out with those guys, that money goes to a great cause. Even if you don't play golf, you can just sit there and drink and watch other people whack the ball, or you can try to whack it yourself. So go check that out. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes for all of this, so you can just either scroll up or either up or left, depending on what your Android, or iOS, uh, and just click on these links. You also go to oilandgasthisweek.com and also see the show notes. And if you're there, give us your email address. Promise not to spam you. And if you'd like to learn about these events and more without having to listen to the show to the very end, uh, sign up for our monthly oil and gas uh, events newsletter. It's free. We don't spam you. We, we take all the oil and gas events that's going on, put them in your inbox once a month. That link is also in the show notes. Then if you'd like to have Jake and I come out and add a little bit of fun and entertainment and some education to your event, and whether that is a booth at a conference, we did a whole bunch of that last year, bringing the podcast to booths at different conferences. It draws a lot of attention to the booth, a lot of good, positive traffic. Or at your corporate event, especially if you're doing like a sales or marketing kickoff, a young professionals group, any of that sort of stuff, reach out to Jake and I, and we'd love to share the details. And then we talked about the first Friday Q&A. If you go to the website, just leave us a question. Like Jake said, don't try to stump us. And then join the LinkedIn group. LinkedIn group is growing. I think we're over 2,000 members by now, Jake. Wow. Is that crazy? Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. And, and Microsoft's doing a really good job of cleaning stuff up. So just go to LinkedIn, type in OGGN. We should pop up. Go join that group. It's the companion to this show and all the other shows. And Jake, we've launched so many shows, I'm starting to lose track. So we have Justin kicking butt and taking names, all and gas onshore sponsored by Tendika. Go listen to that show. He's doing a really good job. We have Sarah out there doing oil and gas legal risk. She's doing some great work there as well. And then we have just a bunch more coming down the pipe. Whew. With all that said, I think it's about time to get out of here. You ready to get out of here, Jake? Yep, let's do it. All right, remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.